Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Tom Farley. Tom is the eldest brother of the late comedian Chris Farley, who after a long battle with addiction, died from a drug overdose in 1997 at the age of only 33. When Chris died 25 years ago, Tom experienced it in much the same way as anyone who has tragically lost a loved one to addiction. However, this situation was very unique in that Chris Farley was an incredibly popular comedian and actor, best known for his TV work on Saturday Night Live and in movies like Tommy Boy, Black Sheep, and Beverly Hills Ninja. So while TV and movie fans across the world mourned the passing of Chris Farley, the iconic performer, Tom and his family had to deal with the huge hole left behind with their brother and son now gone. Seeing firsthand how addiction impacts families, Tom has become a nationally known advocate for prevention, treatment, and recovery, sharing stories about his famous brother as a way to battle the stigmas surrounding addiction and substance abuse. Welcome, Tom, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Oh, where am I? I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, which is our hometown where I, uh, Chris and I uh, grew up and all my brothers and sister. And uh, uh, I've lived other places. I've been out in New York for years and I'm, I'm back home now and I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm glad to have another year gone and, you know, like start anew. Let's do this all over again. Yeah. And what is a Farley Christmas like in Wisconsin? Wow, you know, that's changed over the years. It's really interesting that you ask that. I mean, it used to be crazy and fun and, you know, a lot of circumstance when we had, like, you know, a lot of the people when, when there were seven of us growing up in, in you know, and, you know, it was just crazy. It was just, and my father would just love to whip us into a frenzy and get us going, and we just thrived on that. And then, you know, and then we got older and you know it it wasn't as fun it was kind of weird because we all had kind of a kind of budding drinking problem so that changed things up and then you had you know later on in life with my dad and chris you know two like pillars gone that you know it, it's it's always changing now i've got grown kids in one in la one and two in New York. So I spend my Christmases just trying to connect with them. They, they, they won't come back to Madison, but like I just last weekend, I was out in New York seeing all three of them had, happened to be out there. And we had a, so we're just, it's different, but um, we're, you know, fun is always, you know, we don't get too far from yeah. fun. And if I may ask you back in the homestead, uh, how is your mother? And it sounds like you, you, uh, she in the home you guys were always in? No, no. Um, kind of when my dad was kind of retiring, he moved kind of just kind of down the lakefront, just outside that village. But it's still kind of pretty close to where we all grew up. And mom's great. doing great. She's just flies under the radar, although she's like, we're a, I mean, it all came from her. We just did, they just, uh, uh, Dana and David Spade on their Flying the Wall podcast just did a great tribute to Chris. And they had, like, they wanted mom on there. Mom goes, I, I can't do it. you got to come on with this. So I did it with mom. <laughs> and she was panicked the whole week. I'm like, mom. You know, this all comes from all of us. This, what we have, whatever that is, comes from you, you nut. And she was like, okay. And she killed it. She was so good. She's so she, great. It's, uh, she sure she's, did. She's the, uh, as you note, know, Fly on the Wall, David Spade and Dana Carvey, their podcast had a, a really nice tribute to Chris. Five hours over two episodes. Yeah. And as you note, <laughs> featured your mom with you. And as you say, uh, in hearing it myself, I wouldn't have thought anyone was nervous. Because uh, she did yeah. great, and I guess she she really appreciated having you there by her side. You could tell yeah. good support. Yeah. What was that? Was what was that like? Uh, I don't know if you were able to hear the finished product because, of course, you were part of the project. But 
uh, now that it's all come together and been out there, what's the feedback been like? Um, I've gotten a lot of great free feedback. Um, mostly, Bob, mom, mom, mom was so good. I was just thankful that I, yeah, five hours. I was like, oh man, I got what? Do, how much do I got to listen to it? And we were the second one. They had Adam, then had mom, and I'm like, okay, I'm. I listened to it with mom, so that was really kind of. She she loved that. She loved you know, you know opening strong with Adam. He had some great stories, and then mom and I, and then I uh, and then I, I kind of heard bits and pieces of Johnny. I can't wait to hear. I'm, you know, when I have time, I'm going to listen to the whole thing. But uh, I, I, everything I've heard is just phenomenal. Yeah, some great stories and memories. Tom, let's please go all the way back, get the whole story about your family. Please set the table for us and talk about growing up Farley. Wow. So we had this like really weird combination. My dad was this, you know, Midwestern Irish, very conservative, like, but very funny. You know, he just always had the right joke with the right audience at the right time and he was just and and he had this magnetism everyone wanted to be around his orbit it was really weird uh, you know that he could just and i never understood it until i saw it you know manifested in chris and kind of the rest of us but it started with dad i mean like when my when we would go when my friends would come to pick us up any of us, any of our friends would come to pick us up at our house for you know to go out at night they'd always say well we got to come in and see Papa Farrell's and you know yeah. he just and he and when whenever we had graduations at our colleges you know all the other fathers and the you know they all wanted to be around dad you know and because dad was just this guy even the other fathers who were great funny but, you know, but dad kind of kind of and that was he he was like that and then you have my mother they met in college you know dad went to Georgetown and my mom went to Marymount which is a girls college in in Washington and Mom's Boston Irish, you know, my, you know, she is, you know, full on Boston Irish crazy. And uh, so she kind of, you know, brought in this kind of fearlessness, you know, that, you know, is so, you know, key in comedy, you know. And so like when we were out at, at, at a dinner, you know, with mom, you know, the waiter within five minutes knew every player at the table who's with who, what they do, who's not there, why they're not there, the whole story. I mean, the whole thing. Mom was just, she's so uh, just fearless and 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 a risk taker and just out there. So you've got this, like this combination. And she was so patient with just the craziness. My, As I said, my dad loved just kind of this ensemble that he had created, you know, this, especially four boys. And he would just have us, he would just wind us up. Well, the full lineup, as you say, there's yeah. five kids. You're the eldest, Tom Jr., Kevin, Chris, John. You had a little sister, Barbara. No, it she's sounds... the oldest. She's oh, the oldest. Oh, it's the reverse. Oh, my goodness. It is totally the reverse. <laughs> yeah, we better get that straight. She made, she points that out constantly. <laughs> she had to keep you guys in line. Oh, absolutely. And she, But the thing is that she had the nuclear weapon option. Like, if we got, like, in her face or too much, all she had to yell is, Dad, and it was over. It, like, we scrambled. <laughs> So as you described, Tom, a boisterous Irish-American family, you're growing up in Madison, Wisconsin. What would you describe the default emotion of the family? Oh, oh wow. Whether well, you're gonna, We're going to go deep right away because this was an interesting revelation I had in now that I work in recovery. Like one of the first things I, I did this, a retreat with the, the, the treatment place that I work at, Rosecrans in Illinois. And we were doing a retreat for alumni, and I was kind of the, the, the kind of the 
tail end speaker, you know, the kind of the bring on the clowns moment. But I was listening all afternoon to all these clinicians talk about, you know, recovery and stuff like that. And this one woman, this one clinician was talking about trauma. And I always thought trauma was like something big happened and, you know, changes your course in your life. But she was talking about the little things that just kind of you, you accumulate. You don't know that you've done it until you've got to like ma manage those emotions. So she was talking about when it came to me, I just kind of went, whoa, time out. I've got to like process this. I'm just like, it's coming in my head like all at the same time. Before we get to my story, I'm like, I go, do you know what, you know what trauma was like in the Farley family? And like the whole audience was like, oh no. I'm like, no, it's not, it's not that bad. Yeah. The trauma was that we had literally one emotion that we used for everything. And can you imagine what that emotion was? You know, yeah. I got three brothers who went into a professional comedian and I got a son now that's in LA. Yeah, humor. And we got mm -hmm. really good at it. But it we we used it for everything. If somebody was stressed out, we laughed. If somebody was, you know, fell and hurt themselves, we laughed. Not to be mean, but we we just didn't like their pain and we thought we could bring them with humor, we could bring them out of that. And because we didn't like what their pain made us feel like. So that was our default and it became a coping mechanism that turned into a trauma. So yeah, it took a lifetime of finding other emotions to to understand and explore. But humor, that was it. That was that was the go-to and it's, it still kind of is. And again, the plus side is we got really good at it and you know, some some of the family makes some good money off of it. Well, you and your siblings grew up seeking attention and validation by hunting, as you say, for the yeah. big laugh. Yeah. Like the worst thing you could do in your minds was to lose the audience. You needed to keep the audience. Oh, so true. So true. Tom, when I think of your upbringing, all I can think about is the uh, Gronkowski brothers. I don't know if there's a if there's a a, a parallel. The uh, five brothers be. out of Buffalo, New York, four played in the NFL, and of course. Rob Gronkowski, yeah. now again, being encouraged to unretire, join Tom for another Super Bowl run. But when I think of you and your brothers walking down the street, it's almost like I think about the Gronkowskis. They must have put a big slab of meat on the table, and you boys were all, uh, what, what was it like growing up with about, your brothers? Oh, my gosh. You know, it, it's if you ask any one of our friends growing up, who's the funniest Farley, all of our friends will say, like all my friends will say, oh, Tommy, or all Kevin's friends, Kevin, you know, and Chris. Obviously, Chris took it just a little too far, a little extreme, and, you know, he would, he was definitely went out there. But all of us, and, and when we were together, you know, we were this little ensemble that we would feed, you know, we weren't competing. We were just, as a group, just loved laughing and just cracking each other up. And we all kind of knew what we were thinking. So it was, it was crazy. People, we didn't need an audience. We had each other, you know? And, you know, and people just stood back and watched the Farley brothers just unleash. Well, as you note, uh, your other brothers did jump into comedy. You were the only one who went a different direction. You got your marketing degree from Georgetown University. You worked in the financial services industry in New York City. I want to talk about the rise of your brother, Chris. Maybe you can describe a little, take us from he had gone to university at uh, Marquette. Yeah. Totally. Well, my father, my father, and my parents really thought that was that was a that was a value. You needed a you know what what you did after you got your college diploma. That's up to you. But you know they just they wanted to get us that far. So we all we all did that. You know we all it was all a, you know, we valued that. So and I kind of thought that you know as the oldest of the boys, you know it was always kind of like you did that and then you went into business and my dad was an entrepreneur business you know his own business and i thought like that's what you do and 
so I did that, and I, you know, and I kind of, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know if I made the right decisions, you know, in finance. I hated math, but I, it was the '80s. I just kind of went to New York with every, all my other buddies and did that. But I turn around, Chris goes, "I'm going to the comedy." It's like I didn't know that was an option, <laughs> you know. And they're like, wait a minute, I, who gave, that? That was Dad didn't say we could go into comedy, and so and and then my other brothers after the Chris just kind of went. They looked at me, then looked at Chris. I'm like. Chris looks like he's having a lot more fun. So, uh, see ya. Yeah, I'm like, I got left out in the cold. Well, Chris graduated from uh, Milwaukee's Marquette University in 1986. He had a double major, communications and theater. He played rugby on the side. How did Chris get involved with Second City in Chicago? And who was Del Close? Oh, wow. So, so Chris got out, graduated from, from Marquette and worked for my dad for a summer. And it was... You know, he was a, kind of in the sales kind of role, and he was so good with customers. Everyone just, he just knew relationships so well. And he was kind of in the same time, you know, because he's been told all through college, you're going to be in comedy. You got to do this. You're so funny. And so he would try little things. He would do stand up, you know, open mic stand up, and that, and that just was brutal on him. He, he, he couldn't do that one on one with the crowd. He just, he had, but there was this little theater in Madison. Uh, called the Ark that did improv, and you know some people. Uh, Joan Cusack went through it there when she was at the University of Wisconsin, and so Chris kind of wandered in there one day and like, what's this? And there were people on a stage doing this crazy stuff, and he said, "Can I come tomorrow?" And it's like, "Well, yeah, we're having auditions. You can try." They just and it's like the theater owners were like, "No way is this guy gonna do it?" And my whole our whole family was like. What is he doing? And he did it, and he just, right from the start, he just found this kind of, you know, comfort level on stage. And then shortly, you know, he did like a couple months of that, and then he said, you know, well, where is this improv thing? Where is it being done? They said, you know, Second City kind of down Chicago, which is, you know, hours away, just a couple hours down the street. And uh, Chris goes, well, I'm going to Chicago. I'm going to, I'm going to be on Second City. And we always thought we said, okay, the whole family, we're like, we'll see you in six months. And we thought he'd be mm-hmm. home, and, and he, he never looked back. He just took off. It was crazy. And uh, Del Close oh, was Del. kind of his tutor, would you describe? Yeah, well, see, so at the time, Dell had made his kind of market at Second City, but then at that point, he was over at another improv, down, you know, another improv theater down the street, and he was doing some stuff. And uh, Chris just loved it because Dell was where they called him the guru. He had he had worked with the Belushi brothers, the Murray brothers, and that's all Chris needed to hear. And this guy was just um, there's books written about just you know he just was the Svengali, you know, and just would plant the stuff in Chris's mind. Like when you go on stage, you've got to absolutely destroy it, kill it, you know, leave no. And Chris was okay. And that mm-hmm. clearly, that's what he did. You know, he would go on stage and he would leave no prison, and he would just put it all out there. And um, so that's what he learned from from Dell. And and then Second City was having a kind of rough run, so they said, Dell, can you come back? Just can we b- borrow you for a season to kind of get us back on track? And he said, Dell said, okay, but I'm bringing my people with me because he saw in Chris just some amazing stuff. And Chris was very, you know, he was a he apt pupil, if you will. And so all of a sudden, Chris is on main stage at Second City, and all these like that take that's it's unheard of. 
and Dell got them there. And there, it probably caused a lot of like people that have been there years and years, but you know, one waiting for their shot and Chris just waltzes in there. But once they saw him, they're like, yeah, okay, <laughs> this is, this, yeah, let, let, let this horse run. And <laughs> it, it was, it was amazing to see. And that, when I, when the, when my family would go down and see Chris on stage at second city, we were like, oh, okay. You know, we never, it's stuff we didn't ever see in Chris. We saw on stage like, Wow, that where's this going? This is this is, you know, Chris with a purpose. Chris was, you know, Chris using his his skill and talent and showcasing it. So it was pretty interesting to see because you know it, it was you know finding his lane for most of his life. I mean, you know, it took me like decades more than Chris. So to see it, like like all right, he's there, he's found it. That's <laughs> my dad was like, okay, that's one, one got it. <laughs> If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Tom Farley, please know that there are more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got John Biner from TV's Bazaar, Malcolm Johnson from Toronto Life Magazine, Wendy Mesley from the Women of Ill Repute podcast, Chef Rob Rainford, Yuck Yuck's Mark Breslin, Glass Tiger's Alan Frew, and Soraya Tinker from your Toronto Six Hockey Squad. So many great behind the scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24 7 365 wherever you get your podcasts. Now, how did how did Lauren Michaels discover Chris and how did he make that transition from Second City in Chicago to Saturday Night Live in New yeah, York? Yeah, you know, this is interesting because, you know, obviously, you know, that was kind of the triple the A ball club for SNL is, is uh, Second City at that time. Now there's a lot more of this ground things and there's, there's just a lot of places that, that they can pick and even stand up. So, but at that time it was, you know, that was clearly the cream of the crop came from there. And Chris had like, with a couple of uh, shows under his belt, he had created quite a buzz and people said, you got to see this. And so, you know, they talk about, you know, people auditioning for SNL. Chris never had to audition. You know, I was, so I was working in New York. I was there, you know, trying to, you know, do this <laughs> Wall Street marketing job. And uh, Chris Waltz is in. And he, I remember the weekend he goes, yeah, they want me to, they want to interview me at seconds at uh, SNL. And all I know is that he just spent the day, um, they put him up in a hotel and he just spent the day, the Saturday kind of meeting cast members. It was kind of like, is this guy going to fit in? It wasn't any audition, wasn't any kind of, and and then at the end of the night, he calls me up. It's like, Tommy, we get to go, to the sh- you want to go to the show? And to us, it was all about, oh my God, we're going to see SNL. <laughs> Chris had no, you know, he just spent the whole day with them and it wasn't about, he wasn't panicked or stressed out about, did I do well or can I, am I going to get on the show? It was just kind of like, of course I'm going to be on the show. It just was, and then we went to the show that night, and we were like these two kids from Wisconsin. Like, oh my god, I can't believe we had SNL. A couple months later, he's introduced with Chris Rock as the two new, you know, featured players. Yeah, as you know, with Chris Rock, they were the yeah. two new guys. Chris had five seasons total on Saturday Night Live, 1990 to 1995. Tom, were you in New York City at that time? Like, were, were you? Uh, yeah. So you would obviously so- have been able to interact quite a bit and i don't know what your memories of that period were oh my gosh we i was up there all the time you know uh for the first couple of years i lived in the city on the upper east side and then i i kind of moved i started having kids and so we moved up to westchester but I, you know i would like those first two years i i saw so many shows to the point where like chris would call me up he's like you want to go to the show tonight and i'm like who's playing and he's like i'm oh, playing boy. 
jerk. And he's like, click. You know, hang up the phone. And I'm like, okay. But we did see some pretty good bands. So I would, and a lot of times I would just show up and just, I don't need a ticket. Let me just hang out in your dressing room and, you know, come out when the bands were playing. So, you know, I did just a ton of that, you know, and was up there. Or, or I would stop by after work. I would just go up to, you know, the offices on the 17th floor. And uh, there, there were some funny kind of moments, you know, that it was just, it was just funny to kind of be up there and kind of seeing these people and this world that was so famous. And now I'm like, I'm just kind of showing up there in the offices. Like, hey, man, what's going on? You know, Dennis Miller used to call me T- Brother Tito. Oh, here's Brother <laughs> Tito. I'm like, hey, is that like like Jackson? That's not good, right? I'm that, I'm that brother? I'm Fredo? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be that brother. <laughs> well, uh, I was. Well, I was. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, Chris is a performing idol. It's, it's been kind of well talked about and documented. It was John Belushi, who, who met the same fate due to drug addiction 15 years before Chris's death. In fact, it's been said that Chris used to, you know, wear John Belushi's stage clothes under his own clothes I don't, as an homage or to be close to his idol. What was the whole, uh, I guess, uh, idolization of John Belushi that Chris had? Yeah, well, Chris was very superstitious for one, you know, so that kind of stuff, you know, he, anything, you know, and and the, and I I do, re, you know, he always kind of looked at, you know, when we were growing up in the early 80s, John Belushi, you know, through his talent at comedy and through his, you know, um, being a cast member on SNL, he was literally um, one of the most famous people on the planet for like two years. And Chris's, you know, Chris saw that and said, I want that, and I will pay the price to be that. I will do that. I, that I want that. But it really—that's where it stopped. You know, as far as the idolation goes, he wanted what Belushi had, but he was not anywhere close to the kind of person that John and Chris are two different people. I mean, Chris's idol growing up—he always loved the bigger comics. You know, that he was kind of drawn to that, and so he loved the like Gleason. You know, uh, those guys, you know, I mean, that was Gleason more than anything, you know, more than Belushi was his was his idol growing up. And then, you know, when he became kind of, you know, he would always kind of like the John Goodmans and he just loved being around the bigger guys. So it that it, that's, you know, that's kind of, you know, people take it to the to an extreme with the, you know, Chris Belushi thing. But, you know, yeah, there was a Chris wanted that Chris wanted that kind of level of stardom. But he he wasn't as dark. It, w- it was said that uh, you know, as many got concerned about Chris and his health. In fact, it was John Belushi's brother Jim who was kind of asked to intervene and talk to Chris, tell him you know you're following a path that is not going to lead to a positive ending. What was the relationship between Jim Belushi and your brother, or or Jim Belushi and you being in a similar situation where you yeah. care for your yeah. brother? It's interesting. I you know I I don't know. Yeah, everyone tried to kind of intervene and you know and and again what we knew about addiction back then you know we everyone was kind of focused on behavior you can't behave like that that's going to kill you not really understanding about the addiction which i certainly understand now that i didn't at the time but when chris after chris died uh, uh, jimmy and i had an interesting kind of uh encounter uh when i started the chris farley foundation it was my focus was on prevention trying to help younger kids who were Chris's, you know, main audience at the time, uh, 
you know, telling Chris's story and hopefully they will not go down that path that Chris did. And so it was more prevention, you know, themed and those kind of messages. And I was at an event with Jimmy once and we were talking backstage. I, you know, he had gone through, he knew addiction a lot better than me. And he had a son that was struggling. And, you know, for him, it was all about treatment. And it was kind of this moment like, you know, prevention's more important. No, treatment's more important. And we were going kind of back and forth. And, you know, if you know anything about the Belushis, um, they can, they can, that, that fuse gets lit pretty quick. So Jimmy got really animated. And I'm like, okay, 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 okay. But uh, uh, I look back on that all these years later, I'm like, you know, he might have been a little, he had a point. He had a better, you know, uh, prevention is key, but kids are always going to, as he was saying, you know, the kids are always going to experiment because they're always going to do this. You know, it's 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 good to to focus on, on on prevention, obviously do the best you can. But on the backside, we had, you know, treatment, you know, and and an emphasis on on recovery, um, you know, it's it, we struggle with that. You know, it's been really hard. We still don't understand you know, treatment to the point where, you know, insurance companies will only, you know, allow for like 30 days and like, like it's, you're setting a, you know, a broken bone, you know, it's fixed now. It's like, we still don't really understand um, that. So he was onto something there, that's for sure. But uh, um, it, it, the brother thing is always interesting, you know, um, when you encounter that. I had a really interesting encounter with Moprin Shakur, uh, Tupac's brother. Okay. One, like about 10 years ago. And we were like, you know, these two totally different guys. And we're having this conversation like, our two brothers are the like the epitome of 90s, you know, lost to like, there are these iconic figures that are constantly being brought out from the 90s. Like, you know, we, we lost these guys. And here we are, these two brothers from two totally different. It was weird. It was wonderful, and it was it was great that we got to kind of have that conversation as brothers. Uh, you know, I, you just don't know what, no, what that. You know, I didn't expect that to pop up in my lifetime, but that was I'll never forget that. It was pretty neat. Tom, one thing you got involved with after Chris passed away in 1997, you wrote a book, and you wrote it with a co-author Tanner Colby, yeah. who had previously been a co-author of a biography of John Belushi. Your book in 2008, The Chris Farley Show, A Biography in Three Acts. Why did you write that book? And and uh, how did that fit into well, kind of your process of doing yeah. what had happened to your brother? Well, you know, it's interesting. It was a process. That was a process too. So right after Chris died, you know, I, we'd always, in, you know, and it was part of our, you know, managing our grief is whether we were talking about with friends or just my brothers and I, you know, talking about the funny stuff that Chris did, that, that it's unbelievable. The stuff you saw on screen, funny. But the stuff that we saw like every day grow, from growing up was just 10 times funny. I'm like, you were the funniest person in the room just telling a Chris Farley story. Like, you, yeah. you remember when he did this or did you hear what he did last night? And you were hysterical. And all you're doing was relating what Chris did. Um, and I'm like, that's a good book. And I started to, you know, kind of write the stories, these, these funny, funny stories. And I shopped around to publishers in New York and they said, yeah, that's good, but we want to hear the whole story. And I just wasn't ready to go there yet. You know, again, my default was humor. I had, you know, for grief and I, that's where I went first. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to go, I'm not doing that yet. And then Years later, Tanner approached me. He said, I just did this thing with Belushi, and I kind of talked to the same characters we talk 
you know, for Chris, you know, the same people, same managers, same SNL people, like, would you be interested? And I'm, and at that point, I'd been going into schools and talking, and I got comfortable telling Chris stories, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? Now it is, it is the right time. And so I loved that, you know, the way Tanner uh, did the Belushi book and we did our book is with just interviewing all these people. Um, if it was just in my voice, it would have been completely different. Probably not as good, you know, but I got, we interviewed all these people from growing up to, you know, Mar friends at Marquette to, you know, second city, you know, SNL, Hollywood, um, some of our homeboy friends. Um, and uh, they were telling their relation about their relationship with Chris. And the more I, I, I kind of took that all in. I, I I really started to see Chris in a in a much different light through this process, and I I like to say, and I said right after right after we you know brought the book out, it's like I have a better relationship with Chris now than I ever did when he was alive because I hmm. I get it. I was able to give a, give up so much the emo the, the 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 anger and resentment over his addiction and that behavior, and I, I just like I I gave him. I, I just saw him in a much better light, and I, I'm so for that. I'm I'm truly thankful of the the book and the process that was. Well, if I may, Tom, just to to quote the New York Times review of that book, it speaks much of what you're speaking about. Many failed to see that Chris Farley was much more than just another Hollywood drug overdose. Through this book, Farley's friends and family remember his work and life. Really talking about the whole picture. Yeah, yeah. It's like you know, yeah. Just really seeing. The good in Chris, you know, and when he when he was in active addiction, you know, we understand that a little bit more. I, yeah, it was all that stuff, and it was just great to hear. Just like just like we hear, like twenty five years later, we hear these these songs that people are writing about him, or these 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 remembrances and these things. It's such, you know, that's how you want to remember people, and it just really is. Um, uh, it's just it's it's a wonderful legacy to to finally be there, and you know I I have this conversation with a lot of people a lot of people that have lost people to this disease, and I said you know don't and they always want to make Chris this poster boy of you know addiction and you know uh, overdose awareness and stuff like that I'm like you know don't don't confine a person's life to that last moment you know this was a, a human and they they brought. They brought joy, yeah. They brought pain to themselves and other people around them. But they were, you know, they they had such good qualities. Like, try to focus on that. Like, I've been blessed that I've been able to live with this memory of Chris in 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 that in that light. So, yeah, it's it's important to remember the the you know addiction does um, cause you know pain and death. But again, these are still humans, and you know. Let's remember that too. It also, Tom, caused you or gave you cause to look at yourself. You've been incredibly candid when you've sp spoken before. I'll allow you the chance now. I apologize if I'm intruding too much, but to the extent you want to be candid today, one thing you realized is in looking at all things your brother went through and examining your own relationships, that you had to deal with your own issues and you had to come to terms with your own lifestyle. Do you want to make any comments on that and, and the process you went through? Well, yeah, it was, and boy, was it a process. I mean, like when Chris died, you know, we all kind of, well, the first thing, like when Chris was alive and this was, you know, I noticed this a lot of, with a lot of families, 
is when you have a family that has this, you know, preconceived kind of, you know, all the, you know, um, all the signs and symptoms. Um, when you have somebody like Chris, it's easy to say, point to that person and say, well, I'm not that bad. You know, I'm, I guess I'm okay because that's, I can get a lot worse, see, you know, and, and, and not deal with your problems. And we did that, my family, for a long time. And then when Chris died, it was like, okay, who's, you know, like, now who's the worst? You know, I, I don't know. But we didn't really say that. It was really who's, who's the fattest now. But um, <laughs> um, so I, I looked at that. I'm like, okay, I, you know what? It's, this disease killed my brother. Maybe I should. I was having, you know, all sorts of train wrecks in my life. I'm like, all right, I'm going to stop drinking. And plus I was running a Chris, the Chris Riley Foundation. I just thought that seemed hypocritical. So I would stop drinking and I would have like five years just not drinking and thought that's what I needed to do. And again, I would go into AA meetings like I was with my, like with my family. I could always point to somebody in AA like, well, I'm not that bad. That guy mm -hmm. drinks and takes drugs. Like, oh my God. Mm -hmm. So I said, I don't need this. I can, I can, I can do this because I had so many. I had three kids and a wife and a job and I, New York and I that those enough distractions to keep me sober. But like four or five years in, it was I was always like my mind would always come back to the way it thinks and processes and like you know I've been five years sober. I can have one Guinness on St. Patrick's Day. I'm an Irish guy. You know, come on. I know I can handle this now. And I was amazed at how quick I was like back on varsity. You know, back back and. In the driver's seat, I'm like, wow, that just, and, and then I would, you know, and I, and I knew how difficult that was to get sober. And so I would kind of prolong, and then I would have another five years again, same thing. But I was like, but why am I like, why am I having all these train wrecks? Why am I like being a strain on my relationships? Like I'm sober. I thought that was enough. And then like four years ago, I, I got tired again of doing the same old stuff and I stopped drinking and somebody that I really trusted said, well, come to a meeting with me. And I'm like, I've done, I'm like, you know what? Okay. I'll try something different this time. And I went and I listened, I shut up and I listened and I, and, and, and I started to understand, I started to stop thinking about how much I drank and who drinks more than me. I started to listen to people's stories and say to myself, Oh, wow. I think like that. Yeah, I did that. I behaved like that. It wasn't about drinking. The clear, the sobriety just gave me the clarity to be able to finally deal with the stuff, the way I think about things the way I pro and, and it was, and it was all about relationships. And the, the thing is, uh, the way I thought was, was making it hard to be in relationships and, 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 and to connect with people. And because of that difficulty, because I'm a very kind of social person and, and still finding that difficulty, the only way I knew how to manage that, you know, disconnect was to drink. Mm -hmm. And so I had to find a different way to manage it. So um, recovery to me in the last four years has been life-changing and life-saving because of that, that shift. So, what, And you use a word, relationships, Tom, especially oh. in the recent period. We just came through COVID and this pandemic. I think it showed us how much we need connection and relationships. You've said that mental health and substance abuse are diseases of isolation. People have these diseases because they feel so isolated. What has been the impact of the pandemic? Has it been completely negative or has it kind of exposed this need for connection? Well, I call it the blessings of COVID because it does expose all those things of need for connection. Everyone, you know, you know, it, it all comes, for me, that all comes back to that. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, the, 
the whole world suddenly felt what it was like to be isolated and disconnected. And the thing is, there have been people in our society, in our communities, sometimes even in our families, that have felt that their entire every day of their entire lives. The whole world felt it for 18 months, two years, and they freaked out. Like they were getting kicked out of Walmart and off planes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how bad, it, like disconnection, isolation, that's what it causes. This, it, you know, we as humans are hardwired for connection. We exist for no other reason than to connect. So when a thing like the the pandemic comes along and disrupts that, we saw the effects. It was clear as day. So now the work, the real, the real, what we really need to lean into is connection. Yes, there's all the sort of treatment and this and that, but it all comes back to um, connection. Yeah, and for me, uh, it's what's what's really funny is. That was my approach to prevention years ago after Chris, when I when I started to look at all, my first thought as a marketing guy was like, how do my brothers connect to audiences? You know, how do they use their humor? Because I got to use humor, even though this is a serious subject matter, it's all I got. But how do they connect with, and I looked at their skill, you know, that they learned at Second City, all of them went through Second City and learned improv. And I studied improv, and then I realized that it was a not a comedy tool. It was designed by a woman in Chicago that was dealing with inner city at risk kids, and she mm. designed these these games and exercises to help them communicate better, to form ensembles, to connect. And I'm like, that's it. And so I I have been going into schools teaching improv as a means of connection for years. And then COVID comes along and it was kind of validating. It was like, this is what I've been talking about. And I just, now I've been doing it more now that I'm actually in the treatment field. I'm like, I'm still talking about more and more about connection and using my story, my family, my understanding of improv and my brothers, all my brothers and, and son now who are, are experts in the, in, the, in the craft, using it as a means and a, and a proof point of why we need to connect better. Well, things have certainly, we all learned a lot about ourselves and our relationships. It was imposed on us, as you noted, and we're learning how to deal with all these things better. I want to pivot a bit, if I may, Tom. This being Toronto Legends podcast, we love to hear stories about Toronto and Canada. Chris had a lot of experiences filming in Toronto. Tommy Boy was filmed here, of course, 1995. Toronto played the role of Chicago and small town Sandusky, Ohio. Yeah. They filmed at U of T, Billy Bishop Airport, Distillery District was the auto parts plant. On the podcast that we talked about before, there were lots of stories about Chris being at Barbarian Steakhouse and a little place here called the Brass Rail. I don't know your time, Tom. Have you had any experiences in Toronto and Canada and uh, any stories from Chris's filming days. Yeah, well, boy, first, boy, did they find the perfect place, the perfect setting. It, it was so, so iconically perfect. Um, yeah, so that's, I was always jealous because I was kind of, kind of, you know, working my, you know, I, I never got up there. And the thing is, and Chris wasn't really, you know, because he was still on SNL, I mean, he, it was such a grind. You know, he would be flying back and forth, on uh, you know, days. And it was just, you know, I, I don't know how he did it. He and David were like, you know, I would see him like that week, the next weekend. At, I would come to the show once in a while. And they were like, exa- just, just wiped out. And yet going on live, you know, TV and killing it. So they weren't in Toronto enough a uh, long enough for me to like kind of visit and certainly they weren't there on the weekends when i was off so 
I would just hear these stories, you know. Um, Chris was just always talking about, oh my God, we're, we're, we're carnivores. And so when, when, when we go someplace, we talk about, you know, the steak. The steak I had last night was so perfect. And they sauteed the mushrooms and, you know, like, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And he would come back from Toronto with these stories about the, the eating that he did up there. That's all I heard. That's literally yeah. all I heard about Toronto was the food, which is all I cared about. <laughs> well, certainly to have a high quality steak, uh, to have that validated by someone from Madison, Wisconsin, that would be high praise. Oh, yeah. No, it, it totally was. It was just and then like, you know. Um, is that where we was talking about the shaved beef too? Do you guys have that, or is that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. is that Montreal? Is that... Well, Montreal's got its own uh, own versions, but uh, it's interesting that you but say you're carnivores because <laughs> certainly I can picture all these great places. Yeah, if you was talking about it, like what's that called? <laughs> like that's I don't I don't know what that tastes like, but the, just the name alone was something I, I like. I want so. Um, years later, so when I started the Chris Farley Foundation and wanted to get into this whole learn about improv and, and make some connections, I, I went up to, you know, the other, you know, second city north in Toronto and sat down with, uh, Andrew Alexander. We had a great lunch. It was, it was fun. Um, just kind of seeing, cause you know, as much as, uh, as much as we grew up loving, uh, SNL, because maybe because it's more Midwestern and, you know, kind of Canadian, you know, SCTV was a little bit more up our alley. So to be in Toronto with, you know, t- for us, yeah, that was, you know, that was really special for me. And I, th- I think it was for Chris, too, because, you know, the whole first couple of seasons of SNL. OK, you're iconic. But after that, you know, they had. Good cast, good cast. That's when SCTV came in and they crushed it. Those people, they're still today are, they're, they're Mount Rushmore level, you know, comedians. There's so, so many connection between the two. And the story goes that yeah. uh, Mike Myers, who is from Toronto, yeah. while he was waiting for his visa to come through, he would uh, hang out at uh, Second City in, in Chicago, waiting for his paperwork to clear him. So, so many connections between the uh, comedians. Yeah, and, and I just watched US. a great, another, then after that, I just watched a great, great um, documentary on Netflix on Kids in the Hall. I don't know if is that Toronto. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're, oh my god, I, we loved. I just yeah, that was another thing. There's so there's something there. It was it's very Chicago like in 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 the comedy. Maybe that's why because we love Chicago and there's something about Toronto that is, there's that connection that's strong and it's just it, it's so pure. I don't know. It's that Midwestern kind of Canadian just authenticity just like you know and that's that was the beauty of chris's humor you know is is he wasn't trying to kind of play roles or play parts or have characters he was going to be his authentic self you know in these different scenarios or roles it was but it all was based on this is this is me this is why i'm am going to bring that to the role. I'm not going to try and mask it. I'm going to try and, you know, bring it. And that is so Canadian. That's so Wisconsin, you know, you know, that's just who we are. I do want to give a shout out to my Wisconsin friends, Harry and Sally Rader in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, just outside Sheboygan. So I've spent some time there and I agree with you. There's a lot of parallels between Wisconsin and Ontario. That's beautiful country over there too. I love it. love that area. (laughs) Tom, I got some loose ends for you. You've been very good with your time. So if you don't mind, Jim Farley, is the CEO Jimmy. of a little company many of us have heard of, the Ford Motor Company. He is not a Farley brother, but a Farley cousin. 
Tom, do you feel compelled out of family loyalty to drive a Ford? I have a dream, and I do drive a Ford. As a matter of fact, <laughs> Jimmy and I were roommates at Georgetown. So he's not just my first cousin. We have been, and we went to high school, we went to prep school together for, for a bit too. So he has been like more than a, a relative. He's been like a really best friend my in, you know, my entire life. And we still, we, we, we exchange tweets, you know, three times a week still. And, you know, Jimmy, God, he's so smart. And he just, his car, he's, he's got car in his blood. But when I was talking early on about that, that kind of Farley magnetism that I, I definitely saw my, in my dad and certainly Chris and, and my brothers, Jimmy's got that too. It's that same thing. There's something that, you know, cause you know, that his dad must have had. It. And cause Jimmy definitely has this, you just, you just like the guy. He's so likable. And, you know, in, in, in such a position as CEO of Ford, you'd think you have to like have, be tough as nails and stuff. And, you know, anyone that's ever interacted with him is like, oh my God, he's the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and that has nothing to do with being first cousins with Chris. It's just Jimmy being Jimmy. And so, yeah, I just love what he's doing there. And, and I love my Ford. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got a bunch of, uh, as you know, the internet is not always accurate. So you can verify some of these little loose ends. Chris was originally going to be the, the cable guy in yeah. the role eventually played by Jim Carrey. True or false? Yeah, no, that's very true. That's very true. He was all set to go. And what well, Carrey broke out was something. I don't know, but that, that was like the first mega deal. Jim got like went into the you know stress over the twenty million dollar contract, and so they they said uh, they kind of the, they said they went back to Chris and said, you know, will you take you know this check to walk away? And Chris goes, yeah, all right. That <laughs> would have been a whole different you know kind of thing. So yeah, they just they they paid him and walked away, and he was fine with that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he was going to be this this cable guy. I thought, oh, he's going to crush this. It's going to be so funny, and then. Uh, Carrie got it, and I'm like, and I saw the movie, and I'm like, Chris wouldn't have done this. This is great. This is so Jim Carrey. He made it his film, but Chris yeah. would have made it. it would have been different, but just as fun. And another one that was different is Chris had recorded, apparently, 90% of the title character voicing for Shrek, uh, but eventually this was completely re-recorded by Mike Myers. Yeah. And it was, it. yeah, and that was another thing. It was like a different, you know, lovable ogre. He wasn't, you know, it, it was, would have been interesting um the, the video but he wasn't this buffoon you know he was a very ogre with a heart which is so would have been perfect for chris they had it they were gonna they even asked my brother kevin if he wanted to record some you know and and they were struggling with that what to do with it and they said it just didn't feel right to 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 put that out as a film with chris having died so the way i hear it and, I, and again and i think this is true but so they asked Mike Myers, and Mike Myers came in, and he recorded it. And they were like, huh, okay, that's okay. They go, what about that Scottish character you do oh. on SNL? And, and Mike goes, yeah, oh, can you do it in that voice? And so they recorded a third time, and obviously, you know, franchise history. You know, it's uh, so, yeah, it, it took a long time to get that movie out there, but boy, did it... Uh, did it uh, strike gold? Yeah. But, you know, kind of Chris created that, like, what's an ogre with heart look like? You know, so he gave a lot of material for, for Mike to uh, to work with, that's for sure. The last one I want to bounce off you, Tom, was that Chris's iconic motivational speaker, Matt Foley, was based on an actual guy named Matt Foley. Yes. 
I, and I just, uh, I literally just had dinner with him a couple of weeks ago. Matt went to Marquette with Chris, who's a little, he's my age, is a couple of years older, played on the rugby team, and he was a great rugby player. And he went on to be a Catholic priest. Mm. And so he's Father Matt fully now. But Matt went to see Chris at Second City once. And it was the first time that the motivational speaker was unveiled, something that was written by Bob Odenkirk, who was with a cast member with Chris, and he wrote it with Chris in mind. So Chris did, and Chris would do this all the time. He'd know, like, one person was in the audience, so he would either use their name or throw a joke out that just that one person would get. So Matt was in the audience, and Chris came out, and he goes, I'm Matt Foley, motivational speaker. And afterwards, he saw Matt after the show. And he said, Matt, I'm never going to change the name of that character. That's going to be Matt Cohen forever. And he was like, all right. We, no one knew where that was going to go. So Matt's uh, this soft-spoken you know, Catholic priest now in Chicago. And um, that's something he's going to have to do. <laughs> he deals with Tom, as we close off, for me, learning from you about Chris and his story, two of your messages really jump out. And I'd ask for a comment on each. The first key message that you've talked about is humanity. What do you mean when you talk about humanity? Well, I mean that we're on we're we're here for a purpose, you know. Um we are so much better connecting and you know we 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 really are able to find all the best things about uh who we are when we connect and that that you know that you know when we don't connect that you know we become in you. You know that's that's we become instinctive and it's not it's not natural you know one of the things and you touched on it before is is mental illness and, and addiction we know are diseases of isolation you know we know that and we talk about it all the time but the flip side of that is we cannot heal in isolation it requires connection and that brings us back into our humanity the second big uh, message that jumps out from you is that there is help available why is the messaging so important about help being available because it is so, because everyone's an individual, you know, it's not one side, you know, you know, you, if you break a bone, there's, there's one way to fix it, you know, maybe, maybe a few, but, you know, it fixes in a certain way. But addiction and mental health, it, you know, it, it, everyone brings, you know, so many things to it, so many different of their own experiences and traumas that it's always different. So treatment isn't so one size fits all. There's many roads to recovery, as we say, and we need to allow that. We need to <clears throat> accept that and allow that to happen, you know. And so, I think we need to broaden that. And and the other thing is two two things in this field that I am really encouraged about are the uh, uh, where it's going in the future is peer recovery is now a growing thing. You know, you know, people in recovery taking helping each other out. Peer recovery and sober living homes. You know, which is where Chris found a lot of, you know, coming out of treatment and going back to SNL, you know, he, he went to a sober living home in lower Manhattan. And that's where he just like, you know, just is he wasn't being robbed of his talent anymore. It was it, it works. And the, what I like about him is before when somebody went to treatment or went to a hospital, they were out of sight, out of mind. They would go away to treatment. And these two things bring it back into the community. It, it, bring it brings it back into you know, you know, letting people see what it looks like. And there is nothing like seeing a human healed. And people need to see that. That brings it back to the humanity thing, you know. Um, and so I, I love where treatment is going in, in the sense that it's, it's not just go to treatment and get fixed. It's we're all a part of this. 
it's recovery, it's treatment and recovery. It's it's rest of life stuff. So, where do you recommend listeners go if they or someone they love is in distress and needs support? You know, there there's a lot of information out there. You really need to you know um, have the conversations. It's and and don't expect the all of the answers you know um ha, you know first of all you know the, what i what i talk about a lot is don't it, it, there's lots of information on the on the on the internet and you can get bogged down on that what i what i talk about is 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 when you is is it's a doorway it's a gate gateway and you do all this work i need help i got to do this and you get right up to that doorway and you say the next step is so hard I can't do it. I, you know, the rest of my life, I can't do it. It's so hard. And what I tell people is, do you know what's on the other side of that doorway? The same thing, the same hardship. It's life. It's it. You cannot avoid as much as you try to avoid it. You cannot avoid the hardship and the pain and the suffering. That happens on both sides. The difference, though, is on the side of the of the doorway you're on now. Life does not get better. It, it can only get worse. On the other side, as much as there's still pain, and so, it does get better. There's no question it gets better. And I've seen it in my own life. So um, what I do tell people is not fixate on, you know, make that decision to just do it, to act and go through that doorway. Don't avoid the pain because you're not going to avoid the pain. But tell yourself life can get better and it will and start that journey. A good message to close on. Tom, where can we best follow you? Know where you will next be sharing your stories and, and your lessons learned. Sure. Well, I'm, you know, I'm I'm all over the place. I've Instagram, I think I'm Tom Farley too. You know, I put stuff out there. I, I you know Facebook, I think I'm in, I don't do Twitter anymore. Mad Farley. LinkedIn, you know, uh, you can find me Tom Farley. I, I do that's most of my treatment and recovery stuff is on LinkedIn, because that's kind of like where I'm at now uh, and working for um Rosecrans, rosecrans.org, where I work is, you know, down in, in Rockford, Illinois. Um, a lot of resources there. You can, you know, a lot of times, you know, you can find where I'm speaking next through them. Yeah, it was really, really wonderful to, to talk to you. Well, it was wonderful to talk to you. And I appreciate your taking the time to share your story, Chris's story. And I hope you have a great 2023. I, well, you know, that's what I said last year, but I think this year I'm really going to mean it. <laughs> this is going to be the year. This is it. You and I, this is going to be a year. So continued success to you, Tom. Thank you so much. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. On behalf of Tom Farley, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Do, did, Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? 
Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. <laughs>